Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Lisa Johnson. This week, December 27, 2018, we feature articles on maintenance olaparib in ovarian cancer with mutant BRCA, antipsychotics for ICU delirium, ibrutinib in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, nosocomial transmission of sphingomonas, and tofacitinib and RNA sequencing of cutaneous sarcoidosis. A review article on glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. A case report of a woman with recurrent sinusitis, cough, and bronchiectasis. And perspective articles on opioid use disorder in survivors of cancer. On a 24-7, 365 option for combating the opioid crisis. On ramping up the response to Ebola. And on pregnant women and the Ebola crisis. Maintenance Olaparib in Patients with Newly Diagnosed Advanced Ovarian Cancer by Kathleen Moore from the Stevenson Cancer Center at the University of Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Most women with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer have a relapse within three years after standard treatment with surgery and platinum-based chemotherapy. The benefit of the oral PARP inhibitor Olaparib in relapse disease has been well established, but the benefit of Olaparib as maintenance therapy in newly diagnosed disease is uncertain. This Phase three trial evaluated the efficacy of Olaparib as maintenance therapy in 391 patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer with a germline or somatic mutation in BRCA1, BRCA2, or both, who had a complete or partial clinical response after platinum-based chemotherapy. After a median follow-up of 41 months, the risk of disease progression or death was 70% lower with olaparib than with placebo, 60% versus 27%. Adverse events were consistent with the known toxic effects of olaparib. The use of maintenance therapy with olaparib provided a substantial benefit with regard to progression-free survival among women with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer and a BRCA1-2 mutation, with a 70% lower risk of disease progression or death with olaparib than with placebo. In an editorial, David Spriggs from Harvard Medical School, Boston, writes that the article by Moore and colleagues is the culmination of a long march for olaparib in the treatment of BRCA-mutated high-grade serous ovarian cancer, one that began with its discovery by means of synthetic lethality screening, followed by years of clinical trials to define its activity and refine its uses, and finally led to its implementation in a population of women with potentially curable ovarian cancer. Nearly all the patients in this trial had a germline mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2, and the results may not be generalizable to patients with either somatic BRCA mutations or wild-type BRCA genes. Implicit in the successful trial is an unresolved problem in precision oncology. The patients who were enrolled in the trial had a deleterious or suspected deleterious germline or somatic BRCA1-2 mutation. Thus, the generalizability of the results of this trial to other populations depends on the definition of deleterious mutation. 
It is likely that only a few patients with controversial variants were included in this trial, and that the effect of these variants did not alter the reliability of the results. Given that the knowledge of genetic variants is dynamic and additional specific adverse variants will certainly be discovered, full transparency by reporting to ClinGen or similar sources would be a helpful requirement in the future so that patients with BRCA1-2 mutations can fully benefit from the sacrifices of the participants in the trial. Haloperidol and Ziprazidone for Treatment of Delirium in Critical Illness by Timothy Gerard from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. There are conflicting data on the effects of antipsychotic medications on delirium in patients in the intensive care unit. In this randomized trial, 566 patients with acute respiratory failure or shock and hypoactive or hyperactive delirium were assigned to receive intravenous boluses of haloperidol, ziprazidone, or placebo. The volume and dose of a trial drug or placebo was halved or doubled at 12-hour intervals on the basis of the presence or absence of delirium. The median duration of exposure to a trial drug or placebo was four days. The median number of days alive without delirium or coma was 8.5 in the placebo group, 7.9 in the haloperidol group, and 8.7 in the ziprazidone group. The use of haloperidol or ziprazidone, as compared with placebo, had no significant effect on the primary endpoint of the number of days alive without delirium or coma during the 14-day intervention period. There were no significant between-group differences with respect to the secondary endpoints of 30-day and 90-day survival time to freedom from mechanical ventilation, and time to ICU and hospital discharge, or the frequency of extrapyramidal symptoms. The use of haloperidol or ziprazidone, as compared with placebo, in patients with acute respiratory failure or shock and hypoactive or hyperactive delirium in the ICU, did not significantly alter the duration of delirium. Thomas Bleck from Rush Medical College, Chicago, writes in an editorial that perhaps the most vexing problem in a patient in an ICU is an unexpected change in mental status. The two dopamine D2 antagonists, haloperidol and ziprazidone, used in this study are commonly used in patients who exhibit agitated and potentially injurious behavior in the ICU, such as intentionally or inadvertently removing endotracheal and gastric tubes, or who exhibit agitation that impedes mechanical ventilation. Intensivists have used these classes of drugs, often combined with sedatives, for decades and have considered them helpful in the treatment of patients with delirium. In the study by Gerard and colleagues, the primary result was that neither drug was better than placebo in the management of acute hypoactive or hyperactive delirium. The editorialist would still consider using dopamine antagonists in patients at imminent risk of injurious behaviors, but he would have less confidence in their benefits than he had in the past. Why did the trial fail to show benefit? 
it is likely that our concept of delirium is flawed. The neurochemistry of sudden alteration in mentation is complex and involves several neurotransmitters, as well as structural, immunologic, and network alterations, and possible brain infection that is not clinically evident. The investigators deserve credit for conducting a difficult trial, but it would have been astounding if there were a single magic bullet for the restitution of normal brain function in ICU patients with delirium. Ibrutinib regimens versus chemoimmunotherapy in older patients with untreated CLL by Jennifer Wyack from the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Columbus. Ibrutinib has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of patients with untreated chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL, since 2016, but has not been compared with chemoimmunotherapy. In this Phase three trial, 547 patients 65 years of age or older who had untreated CLL were randomly assigned to receive bendamustine plus rituximab, ibrutinib, or ibrutinib plus rituximab. The estimated percentage of patients with progression-free survival at two years was 74% with bendamustine plus rituximab and was higher with ibrutinib alone, 87%, and with ibrutinib plus rituximab, 88%. There was no significant difference between ibrutinib and ibrutinib plus rituximab with regard to progression-free survival. With a median follow-up of 38 months, there was no significant difference among the three treatment groups with regard to overall survival. The rate of grade 3, 4, or 5 hematologic adverse events was higher with bendamustine plus rituximab, 61%, than with ibrutinib or ibrutinib plus rituximab, 41% and 39%, respectively, whereas the rate of grade 3, 4, or 5 non-hematologic adverse events was lower with bendamustine plus rituximab, 63%, than with the ibrutinib-containing regimens, 74% with each regimen. Among older patients with untreated CLL, treatment with ibrutinib was superior to treatment with bendamustine plus rituximab with regard to progression-free survival. Investigation of a Cluster of Sphingomonas coriensis Infections by Ryan Johnson from the National Human Genome Research Institute, Bethesda, Maryland. In 2016, a cluster of sphingomonas infections sparked an epidemiologic investigation that identified 12 patients over 11 years who had been infected with genetically similar strains of sphingomonas coriensis, a rarely reported pathogen. Sink faucets and water from numerous patient rooms were positive for S. coriensis, which implicated hospital plumbing infrastructure as a possible reservoir. In this study, genomic and metagenomic techniques provided a higher-resolution understanding of this intermittent cluster and revealed a pervasive reservoir in the water system of the NIH Clinical Center. 
Whole genome sequencing of 68 S. coriensis isolates from the NIH Clinical Center obtained from patients and the plumbing system revealed a genetically diverse population. Hospital remediation strategies were guided by results of microbiologic culturing and fine-scale genomic analyses. This genomic and epidemiologic investigation suggests that S. coriensis is an opportunistic human pathogen that both persisted in the NIH Clinical Center infrastructure across time and space and caused healthcare-associated infections. Tofacitinib Treatment and Molecular Analysis of Cutaneous Sarcoidosis by William Damsky, from Yale School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut. There is evidence that Janus kinase, JAK signal transducer and activator of transcription, STAT signaling, plays a role in the pathogenesis of sarcoidosis. These authors treated a patient with cutaneous sarcoidosis with the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib. The patient had not previously had a response to medications and had not received systemic glucocorticoids. This treatment resulted in clinical and histologic remission of her skin disease. Sequencing of RNA and immunohistochemical examination of skin lesion samples obtained from the patient before and during therapy and immunohistochemical testing of lesion samples obtained from other patients with cutaneous sarcoidosis support a role for JAK-STAT signaling in cutaneous sarcoidosis. Glucocorticoid-Induced Osteoporosis a clinical practice article by Lenore Buckley from Yale School of Medicine, New Haven. Approximately 1% of all adults and 3% of adults older than 50 years of age receive glucocorticoids for allergies, inflammatory conditions, or cancer. Fracture is the most common, serious, and preventable adverse event associated with these agents. Risk factors for glucocorticoid-induced fractures include age, greater than 55 years, female sex, white race, and long-term use of prednisone at a dose of more than 7.5 milligrams per day. Screening for fracture risk should be performed soon after the initiation of glucocorticoid treatment. The risk of fracture among patients who are 40 years of age or older can be estimated with the use of bone mineral density testing and the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool, FRACS. Patients should be counseled about adequate intake of calcium and vitamin D, weight-bearing exercise, and avoidance of smoking and excessive alcohol intake. Pharmacologic treatment is strongly recommended for anyone who has had a fracture and for patients who are at least 40 years of age if, according to the FRAX tool, the risk of major osteoporotic fracture is 20% or higher or the risk of hip fracture is at least 3%. Among patients who are receiving glucocorticoids and have a bone mineral density T-score of minus 2.5 or less, indicating osteoporosis, at either the spine or the femoral neck, pharmacologic treatment is also recommended for men who are 50 years of age or older and for postmenopausal women. Bisphosphonates are recommended as first-line treatment because of their low cost and safety. 
The risk of fracture decreases rapidly when glucocorticoids are discontinued. Exposure to glucocorticoids should be minimized as much as possible. A 47-year-old woman with recurrent sinusitis, cough, and bronchiectasis. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by James Mojica and colleagues. A 47-year-old woman was evaluated at the outpatient pulmonary clinic because of recurrent sinusitis with progressive cough and bronchiectasis. Since her mid-twenties, the patient had had recurrent episodes of sinus congestion with two or three sinus infections annually, which had prompted treatment with multiple courses of antibiotics. When she was approximately 30 years of age, skin testing revealed environmental allergies, and blood testing revealed allergies to multiple foods, including milk, yeast, wheat, gluten, rye, and egg white. Elimination of milk, grains, and eggs from her diet resulted in a reduction in sinus symptoms for approximately five years. However, sinus congestion and sinus infections recurred in subsequent years. Three years before the current evaluation, a persistent cough developed. Approximately six months before the current evaluation, the patient noted the onset of daily production of yellowish-white sputum. The amount of sputum increased, and the sputum occasionally appeared green. Examination of a sputum specimen was notable for the presence of 3-plus to 4-plus acid-fast bacilli. CT of the chest revealed bronchiectasis that involved all lobes of the lung, but was most severe in the right upper lobe. In this case, the differential diagnosis was narrowed to disorders that cause impaired airway clearance. Given the presence of chronic rhinosinusitis, purulent cough, and bronchiectasis, the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis must be considered. Harder to treat than leukemia. Opioid use disorder in survivors of cancer. A perspective article by Allison Wakeoff-Lauren from the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. Ms. M. was a 24-year-old with chronic myeloid leukemia in blast phase who received an allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant from an unrelated donor. She developed acute graft-versus-host disease of the gastrointestinal tract that evolved into overlap syndrome with severe chronic GVHD of the skin, connective tissues, and joints. Her pain was debilitating and led to prescriptions for first morphine and oxycodone and ultimately hydromorphone. Ill-equipped to manage her increasingly complex pain syndrome and low mood, Dr. Wakeoff-Lauren referred her to psychiatry and pain management. But at their weekly visits, Ms. M. began mentioning pruritus, constipation, and sleepiness. When her boyfriend expressed concern about her hydromorphone use, she admitted that she had been receiving hydromorphone prescriptions from her internist as well as from Dr. Wakeoff-Lauren. She was taking it every hour or two. Trouble continued to simmer. Her pain was mitigated by immunosuppression, yet she insisted she could not tolerate lower opioid doses. Dr. Wakeoff-Lauren agonized about renewing her hydromorphone. Ms. M. finally admitted that she had a substance use disorder and acquiesced to residential treatment. 
Woven into our language about the opioid epidemic is an implication that oncologists can hand out opioids as if there were no tomorrow. But for many people with cancer, there is now indeed a tomorrow, one that should be free of opioid addiction. Emergency Departments, a 24-7, 365 option for combating the opioid crisis. A perspective article by Gail D'Onofrio from Yale University School of Medicine, New Haven, Connecticut. Emergency departments, EDs, administer life-saving interventions all day, every day, and all night, every night. In addition to rapidly resuscitating and stabilizing patients with acute illness and injury, emergency physicians are charged with identifying the appropriate level and type of care within the healthcare system, from intensive care to treatment in an outpatient clinic, for patients who are seen in the ED. When it comes to opioid use disorder, however, there has been reluctance among emergency physicians to initiate treatment with buprenorphine, despite the preponderance of evidence from well-designed clinical trials supporting opioid agonist treatment. Most recently, a randomized trial conducted by Yale School of Medicine investigators demonstrated the feasibility and efficacy of ED-initiated buprenorphine treatment. ED-initiated buprenorphine was also found to be cost-effective. Even with decades of research demonstrating the effectiveness of opioid agonist treatment, a minority of patients are benefiting from these medications. Engaging patients with opioid use disorder in opioid agonist treatment with either buprenorphine or methadone is essential to addressing the opioid epidemic. For patients who present with opioid overdose, an ED visit represents a critical, time-sensitive point at which initiating life-saving treatment is possible. Ramping up the response to Ebola, a perspective article by Jennifer Nuzzo from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, Baltimore. Before 2014, it seemed unimaginable to many experts that Ebola would rip through dense urban areas, ultimately sickening nearly 30,000 people and killing more than 13,000. Four years later, Ebola is again spreading in urban areas, this time in the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC. Since September, the incidence of Ebola has more than doubled, according to WHO Situation Reports. The virus has spread to 11 DRC health zones, and the WHO has deemed the risk of further regional spread to be very high. Containment is not possible without bolstering efforts to detect all cases, conduct thorough case investigations, monitor case contacts, and rapidly isolate anyone with symptoms. At this point, intensified efforts, as requested by the WHO Emergency Committee, will require additional seasoned responders with cultural competency, including local language skills, technical expertise, and experience in managing complex outbreaks. Given the highly dynamic nature of this outbreak, additional experienced personnel are needed in the field to lead response operations and develop and implement strategies as dictated by changing information. However, CDC staff were recently pulled from the field in the DRC owing to U.S. government concerns about security. 
These concerns need to be addressed so that CDC staff can return. Security arrangements should be made to ensure that any deployed teams could operate safely in affected areas. Pregnant Women and the Ebola Crisis, a perspective article by Lisa Haddad from Emory University School of Medicine, Atlanta. On August 1st, the Ministry of Health of the Democratic Republic of Congo reported the emergence of another Ebola virus outbreak. As of November 13th, there were 341 cases and 215 deaths, making this the world's third-largest Ebola outbreak to date. The public health community learned several lessons when West Africa experienced the largest-ever Ebola outbreak, beginning in 2014. Current prevention and control measures have benefited from these lessons and are directed toward a coordinated response, including improvements in cross-border surveillance, laboratory capacity, case management, infection control at health facilities, culturally sensitive safe burials, and psychosocial care, as well as inclusion of vaccination as a control measure. However, according to available documents, issues related to pregnant women have been largely ignored in these efforts. Though data are limited, the available information regarding pregnancy during Ebola outbreaks provides a reason for concern. Women appear to have higher Ebola infection rates than men. Ebola infection during pregnancy threatens the fetus. In nearly all cases, Ebola in pregnant women has resulted in miscarriage, stillbirth, or neonatal death. Obstetrical units may also amplify the spread of Ebola. Given the hazards for pregnant women and obstetrical health care workers, we need protocols to reduce the transmission risk and to improve maternal and fetal outcomes. Our Images in Clinical Medicine features an 84-year-old man who presented to the primary care clinic with fever, malaise, and discoloration and pain in the fingers and toes that had progressed over a two-week period. The patient had a body temperature of 37.8 degrees Celsius. A physical examination was notable for blue-black discoloration of the distal second through fifth fingers of the left hand dusky discoloration of several fingers of the right hand, purpuric lesions on both hands, and similar discoloration on the toes of both feet. There was associated edema, but no sclerodactyly or telangiectasias. Radial, posterior tibial, and dorsalis pedis pulses were palpable on both sides. Laboratory tests revealed normal renal and liver function and an elevated C-reactive protein level of 12.29 milligrams per deciliter. Necrosis of the fingers and toes has a broad differential diagnosis, including vasculitis, infection, arterial embolism, and thrombophilia. Given the clinical concern about vasculitis, treatment with glucocorticoids was initiated and a biopsy of the lesions on a finger and toe was performed. The biopsy specimens showed fibrinoid necrosis, inflammation, and medial thickening in a medium-sized artery, findings that are consistent with a diagnosis of polyarteritis nodosa, a medium-vessel vasculitis. 
The symptoms of fever and malaise diminished with treatment, which included the addition of azathioprine, and the level of C-reactive protein normalized. The necrotic areas of the fingers were amputated, and the remaining fingers and toes recovered completely. A 24-year-old man presented to the neurology clinic with a one-year history of progressive dysphagia, dysarthria, and weakness in his arms and legs. Three months before the onset of these symptoms, he had received an electric shock while repairing an electric fan. The contact point was the right hand, which had touched an uninsulated wire. The physical examination was notable for clonus of the jaw, brisk deep tendon reflexes in the arms and legs, and fasciculations of the tongue and of the muscles in the arms and legs. See the video at NEJM.org. Nerve conduction studies of the median ulnar, tibial, and common perineal nerves on both sides of the body showed diminished amplitude of compound muscle action potentials. Electromyography revealed neurogenic motor unit action potentials with fasciculation potentials in the tongue and in all limbs. These findings were consistent with chronic motor denervation and reinnervation. MRI of the brain and spinal cord revealed no abnormalities. Given the presence of both upper and lower motor neuron signs with sparing of the sensory pathways, a diagnosis of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis was made. Jaw clonus typically indicates damage to the upper motor neurons in the corticopontine tracts. At follow-up, six months after the diagnosis was made, the patient had worsening limb and bulbar muscle weakness and atrophy. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our audio summaries. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.